You want to give kids enough money to feel meaningful to the kid, but not so much money that the parents are going to get uh, nervous and take control. What's shaking? Welcome back to All In. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. And my guest today is pretty amazing because this dude has something that empowers youth with money. We're gonna talk a lot about that today. And I mean, besides that, he's got two successful exits. So if you're a young entrepreneur, a young person that wants to start rocking in this business world, this guy's already been through it twice. And that's what we're gonna rock it. He's also, you know, spoken at all these places around the world. Luke Howman, how you doing, my man? Good, good morning, Rick. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the show. Let's talk about this thing because uh, you empower youth with money, right? Well, what is that yes. all about, dude? I know it's, it's crazy idea, right? We we tell our youth we want them to be financially you know literate. We want them to be successful, and then we give them absolutely stupid things to do, like hey, do a stock market simulation with you know a simulated hundred thousand dollars and try to make as much money in the stock market as you can in three or four months, which is exactly opposite what any financial advisor would tell you about how to invest your money uh, properly. So what we do is really radical and really simple. We give kids money and we teach kids how to invest money through that process, except the investment is different. It's not in the stock market, it's in their own school. So when we give kids money, the money that they're investing in is how to make the school a better place. And through that process, they learn design thinking, they learn civic engagement, and they learn financial literacy. So is this real money that you give them? Yeah, I know. This is the what? shocker. <laughs> real money. And, and we do it at all grade levels. We just finished a project with three fifth grade classrooms at Hegel Elementary School in Madison, Wisconsin. And the kids go through this process. And I want to point out that this isn't just like, you know, driving by with a car and tossing some, you know, Benjamins to the kids and, you know, riding away. This ain't breaking what, bad. This ain't breaking bad. <laughs> what we do is we actually structure the process. So there's five phases the kids go through. So there's a learning, there's a curriculum. So in phase one, we plan it. We talk about, well, what should be the theme and who should be involved? And, you know, for example, do you want the teachers submitting ideas or just the kids? Most of the times it's just the kids. Then in the next phase, we actually go through ideation. We ask the kids, create good ideas according to the theme. The kids then have to shape those ideas into actual proposals. So if the kids say, hey, we want to put plant a tree in our school, the teachers say, OK, great. How are you going to get a tree? How much does a tree cost? Where are you going to put it? And so we, we kind of put that responsibility on the kids, because when you give kids responsibility, they learn. In go the next figure, phase, right? Yeah, go figure. <laughs> what right? a concept. What a concept. Um, as you can tell, I. I, uh, my parenting style, I have four kids. We're not rubber bumper, you know, hover parents. I, I remember when I was growing up, you know, a good day was leaving in the morning and coming back, you know, late at night, dirty. <laughs> um, okay. Back to, back to participatory budgeting, right? The next phase is the kids vote. The kids go through our app. They see all their ideas and they vote. 
Then they look at the voting results, they ratify them, and then they implement those proposals. So going back to Hegel, I'll give you a couple of things that the kids picked. They, in fact, did pick planting a new tree in their school. They picked buying some new soccer goals for their soccer field. They picked some fidget toys for their classroom, which again, you know, you're like, oh, you're an adult, like, oh, you don't need a fidget toy, but it's not your money. It's, it's actually, we treat it like the kid's money. And, you know, sometimes the kids don't make perfect choices, but that's okay. I don't make perfect choices in everything I buy either. And as a parent, I'd rather have my kid make a few mistakes on a small sum of money than make really you know, challenging life mistakes during college, like getting a debit card or a credit card that they can't pay off or they can't afford uh, when they're not ready. I don't want to train my kids. I want to, I want to make sure they are educated and prepared for life. And this does that. That's so interesting. It's almost, it's sounding like it's almost a mini Congress, right? That's, with, Except with- unlike Congress, which is financially irresponsible, this is a mini Congress that has a budget. And in fact, what we what we really celebrate is, uh, you know, the kids come up with 10 to 15 proposals and the kids can only afford between three and eight of them. And at that moment, like those hover parents, they're like, oh, we have to increase the budget. So the kids get everything they want. And we're like, that's exactly what you don't want to do, hmm. because in your life, you can't have everything you want because your your mind is infinite. You know, if you get richer, you just want more stuff if you're not really satisfied with who you are as a person because stuff doesn't make you happy. So we want to teach our kids, look, there's a budget and you've got to make tough choices in every business, right? I mean, Rick, you run a business. So I'm sure your marketing team, if you said, hey, give me ideas on how to promote my business, your marketing team is going to come up with a lot of ideas. And I'm pretty sure that the sum total of them would exceed your marketing budget. You got to prioritize. That's so interesting, man. I, I start thinking and placing myself in these because I think back to when I was in, this is teenagers, right? That you're working uh, with again, the most part? We, no, we go, we go as young as seven years old, seven years on up because a seven year old can understand the budget. Yeah. I remember student council. I don't know if you're familiar with yes. that, but that was, yes. <laughs> I, I, I served on that. If you want to call it served, of course, people voted, you know, for a couple of years, but I remember programs that we did to where we would do a, a wetlands scenario, you know, and that was one of the things that the student council voted on for this program. When we went and planted trees, I mean, it's, it was like right in my backyard almost, but it was this kind of Island thing just to kind of reinvigorate this habitat. And I remember driving by it, you know, it was something like 10, 15 years later after, you know, somewhere in my mid twenties and looking at this, I'm like, holy cow, that's very lush back there. Now it was just amazing to see the fruit of that years and years later. And uh, I'm thinking about this Congress, but everyone was pretty much in agreement from what I remember, but do you see anything? This is a, kind of funny to me, but do you see anything like partisanship? <laughs> you know, that it starts well, to rear its heads a little bit. Um, it, it, you will of course see partisanship, right? And and part of the refinement process, that middle stage is where we really start to talk about what does it mean to be civically engaged, right? And, and sometimes being civically engaged means getting a proposal that would benefit everyone in the school. Sometimes it means a proposal that would benefit a subset of the school or a minority of the school, depending on how you define minority. Sometimes it means doing what your group did, which is going outside the school. We did a project uh, with a high school in Indianapolis and the kids in high school, because their school district overlaps one of the uh, elementary schools, those kids 
knew from their own experience growing up that that elementary school didn't have a decent playground. Mm. So the kids in the high school who had been in the elementary school voted to put a park and a and better playground equipment in the elementary school. So like your like your student council, I find that if you give kids the opportunity to a sense uh, rise up to think more broadly, they will. It's it's the lack of trust in kids from adults that I think is one of the one of, one of the problems. I kind of want to unpack that because I'm on your side of the table with this and I've always talked about this. You know, the phrase I always use is if they're old enough to ask the questions or old enough to know the answers, that's kind of what I've lived by, even with my own kids. Where does this go wrong? Because I've never asked this question of everyone before. Where does this go wrong with parents to where that, that distrust comes from? Because it almost seems born into a lot of adults. To me, anyways, it seems that way because while your kids start to grow up, They've done nothing at this point, at least from what I've seen. You know, there's certain points, maybe there's some bad seeds out there, whatever, but it's usually the environment they're in, right? The, the family home. But it, it gets to the point, let's say they're amazing kids, right? But, and they've done nothing at this point. You know, they might be 10 years old, whatever, to say that, hey, you should distrust me with making some, some decisions that would actually help me 10 and 15 years down the road, 30 years down the road, whatever, just to see what I can do. But... It, it's almost like this distrust is kind of born into a lot of parents and a lot of adults of kids. Why is that? I don't get it. Yeah. Well, I think it's hard when you, you now we're dealing with some pretty deep psychology, right? I mean, you're going to bring in your own environment. So when you talk about the way you raise your kids, there was a combination of how you were raised and then choices you've made about how you want to raise your kids. Right. And so uh, I don't want to make my mom wrong on this one because I don't think it's fair to say uh, something negative because I think she parented me well, but my mom did spank me. Right. And I just made a conscious choice. I don't want to do that. I don't want to raise my kids that way, which I never did. And I'm not, you know, somehow trying to promote myself as like, you know, some perfect parent. Trust me, if you ask my kids, they tell you all the things I made mistakes. <laughs> There's no manual. <laughs> There's no manual, right? There's no YouTube. Well, there's YouTube videos, but they're the weirdest things in the world. <laughs> That's right. And so, but you do boil down into what you feel comfortable with, right? And I think the the trick that we want to do is build trust. And so I'll, I'll give you a concrete example of building trust. We've talked about giving kids money, but we haven't defined how much. So let's actually talk about how much money we give kids. And I'm going to give a kind of a consultant's answer, you know, that kind of answer that's not an answer. You want to give kids enough money to feel meaningful to the kid, but not so much money that the parents are going to get uh, nervous and take control. So hmm. going back to that fifth grade classroom, right? We started with three fifth grade classrooms and each classroom was given $500. Now that's enough to do something meaningful for the classroom, but the parents are going to get worried or freaked out about 500 bucks. Imagine if I said each classroom had $500,000, right? <laughs> right. Then the parents are going to kick in and go, Oh, I can't trust the kids with that much money. And and what was really cool is those the three classrooms decided to pool their money so they could have a bigger, you know, single impact. That's the trick. The trick is to build trust because now we've had one cycle and we call them participatory budgeting cycles. We've had one cycle. And what you find is that every time you go through a cycle, 
you see the results and that cycle builds trust. Hmm. And I'm basing this on, you know, Rick, I haven't been doing this for, you know, a year. I've been doing this for more than a decade. My last company, Contenio, we built a platform for participatory budgeting in business and for global Fortune 10,000 companies, these big complex budgets with distributed teams who have to reach a decision on how to allocate their money. So our customers were people like Cisco and eBay and Salesforce and BMW and Daimler. And so they had these complex budgets and complex teams. From there, I started doing this philanthropically in cities around the world. So for example, in San Jose, California, we would take potential new tax revenue, present it to the citizens and say, look, if we were to raise an eighth of a 10th sales tax, uh, what would you do with the $64 million that it raises? And then we would list city programs and, the, and that was advisory. We did that for a few years. We built trust. And then the city started to give money directly to the districts. $100,000, a quarter million dollars, a million dollars, where the districts were in direct control of the money. And we didn't start that way. We built up trust. So our goal is to let people build trust in what the kids do, but, you know, like your student council. If I saw your student council improving a wetland, that's going to build confidence that, oh, these kids are civically engaged. These kids are thinking beyond themselves. That's pretty cool. Man, that's it's in this this scripture, this scenario you're describing here. It's like the the city is the adults and the districts are the parents. I'm picking that up, you know, and the, that's a cool approach. So, well, the the organization that does this, what's the name of it? Like For you, us, it's First Root. That's our is. company. Yes, cool. FirstRoot.co. What's your What's your end game with First Root, my man? Well, there's for a startup, right? There's really there's three end games. Um, the first end game is you stay private and you pay yourself a lot of money. The second end game is that you sell to another company. And the third end game is that you sell to the public through an IPO. I don't have direct experience in selling companies on the public market IPOs. I have experience in the other two. And more recently, uh, for the two exits that we mentioned, selling a company to another company, which is the common uh, phase. And I think that that to the entrepreneurs who are listening, you really have to be super clear who you are as a person. Are you the person who's the good at starting it? Or are you a person good at operating it? Or are you a person good at getting it ready to exit and sale? my personal sweet spot tends to be on starting things. When it gets into the operating mode, I tend to bring in operators to help me out or, you know, take over chunks of responsibility. That's a good plan. You got to know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to be successful as an entrepreneur. That's huge. You know, and this sounds like something that you can probably ingrain in the kids that you're building the, oh, these yeah, skill yeah, sets yeah. in too, you know, to say, I mean, I could see that in this mini Congress that you've created or these multiple mini Congresses, you probably start to see, you know, even if some are just integrators, right. But you probably start to see some of the entrepreneurial minded ones, the ones that are almost hardwired that way and start to see, right. okay, where, where are their skill sets? Are they starters? Are they operators? Are they exiters? <laughs> Which ones That's are right. they? Yeah. But you can also see some things that I think are important. You know, I used to believe this narrative because I was a business person that 
people in the civic sector or in the public sector are just less skillful than people in business. And then I started working with them pretty intensely. And I realized that narrative is actually not true, right? That's just a self-serving narrative of business people. I have found people who work in the government who are amazingly skilled people. They're just motivated differently. Uh, I, I know a couple of people who, if they felt like it, they can be making as much money as anyone in the mm-hmm. private sector. They're just not motivated that way. They're genuinely motivated through a concept of service that's different. And so I now believe that there are high quality people everywhere, right? And, and all factors of life. Um, but going back to what I do and, and what we're, we're here to talk about, which is a little bit about businesses and exits. When I started this company, I also enumerated a whole set of exit targets, meaning people who I would want to sell to at, once we got to a size that was you know, worth acquiring and worth selling. Those include other ed tech companies. They include the uh, content providers, which are getting you know, annihilated because of the internet and they're you know, trying to sell textbooks and we don't use textbooks the same way anymore and private equity firms um, who are looking for a certain growth in cash flow. You talked about how once you get this going, the kids become, this kind of becomes ingrained in the school. Yeah. I mean, this is business to business uh, selling, right? Even though the school isn't a business, this is an, you know, like a business to business sale. So those contracts tend to be very durable, those contracts tend to be very long lived. They tend to be very profitable over time because you've got a total lifetime value that's that's pretty compelling. That's incredible. It's a, you're right about that too, because I've got an IPO coming up later this year, right, in cybersecurity, which I'm super excited about. But there's already different larger companies that I've looked at, whether it's five years down the road, seven years down the road, 10 years down the road, whatever. So it's like, oh, we might be attractive to them at some point because right yeah. now it's taking a look at who's attractive to us to acquire because we're it's an, an M&A mode that we're in for our IPO but there's already you know th- there's already individuals not individuals but large corporations I'm talking several billion dollars worth in a market cap I'm like that's somebody who could probably absorb us at some point five years seven well, years and they might even choose the to wait until you go public because you're de-risking them Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of people who are inexperienced in tech companies, the kind of things that you and I are doing is they go, why would someone wait until a company went public and then they acquire them in the public market? Wouldn't it have been cheaper to acquire them beforehand? Well, the answer is not necessarily. Right. Right. Yeah. right? Not necessarily because the public market forces a company to go through a certain set of analysis and a certain set of reviews. So the acquiring company, by letting the company go public, they de-risk some of their due diligence uh, if, and the market may lower their price or may increase their price. And I'm, by the way, I'm really glad you brought up your security background. I was kind of hoping you would do that because I used to work for an Israeli security firm. Um, fun. <laughs> do you remember Aladdin Knowledge Systems? They did those tokens oh, that yeah. did software. You're talking so like, like mid-2000s, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was the head of engineering and product management. Oh, um, fun. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, you know, it's crazy because I've got, you know, teams in Tel Aviv. I've got teams in Munich. I've got teams in Portland. I've got teams in Santa Clara. So my background, um, what we now feel comfortable with 
with distributed, uh, you know, development, I was doing distributed development way back in, like you said, in the early two thousands, um, with physical dongles and software, yeah. anti-piracy and, uh, certificate management and token management. And so what's interesting about that is we actually bring that to the kids to make it full circle. We, in our curriculum, we actually have a lesson about, uh, identity management for the kids. Because they, you know, my kids, for example, you know, one of my sons, he got a, he got a pretty good uh, dad talk because he logged into his, uh, one of his uh, bank accounts and he didn't have multi-factor authentication turned on. And I'm like, uh, we're going to take a step back. Whoops. <laughs> we're going to turn on. You know, and, then, and then Rick, I got that dad, come on. It's a pain. You got to get a text message. And I'm like, yeah, it's a pain. It's your money. It's good. <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs> that's so funny because that's the conversation that my team will always have with our client base too whenever it comes to multi-factor is it's, oh, it's such a barrier and it's like, cool. So what do you want? Do you want to protect yourself or do you want, you know, walk in and you've got a bank account balance of zero the next day, you know, because somebody just walked in and into your castle and you left the door wide open. And you and I have been around, you know, long enough to know that the, the implementation of multi-factor security right now it's about as simple as you get. You put your password in, you get a text message, you dump in the code. Thank you. I mean, remember when we had, you know, the RSA keys and you had yeah. to match in the number and, and then, so it's so much easier, but it, but it can't really get much easier without compromising the, the quality of the security. But we bring that mindset into what we're doing with kids and, and the schools, right? My background is, you know, when you're building, a, the listeners may not know this, and Rick may know this, the Cisco Casper security standards, mm -hmm. right? My last company, when we, I remember we were working with Cisco for about a year, we get this note from their security team saying, hey, we see a lot of traffic to your company. Who are you? What are you doing? I explained that, you know, Cisco teams are using our software to help manage their budgets. And they're like, okay, you got to come under our security posture. So then we became Casper security compliant, which is not an easy thing to do. For sure. And then we were able to use that to leverage our growth. We're bringing that same level of mindset to schools, even though they don't realize they want it. So when I'm bringing my stuff to the kids at school, it's, built under the same kind of security posture that we use in business. And, and that's important. For sure it is. With the kids, I'm curious, because have you ever seen this go awry? Like what, what pitfalls have you seen in the project? Because it's, I mean, kid, even though we're saying, hey, we trust kids and you and I are on the same mindset as far as that goes, you know, there's still possibility for blunders, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, and kids are people, right? So yeah. let's look at just how, how do adults screw up and, and you look at how adults <laughs> screw up and it's, and you can kind of predict kids are going to screw up the same way, right? So there's a couple of things there. I'm going to try and reframe um, uh, screw ups as learning opportunities, but let's look at some of the really nasty ones. Like, like let's go bad. Let's yeah. put on our security black so hat. How, let's how go noble of you to, to reframe the screw ups. <laughs> yeah, I know. But let, <laughs> so, but, dude, some screw ups are just screw ups. Yeah, so, <laughs> I've so done they, that. <laughs> well, that's true too, right? Yeah. But 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 you learn. I'm, I mean, even in business, I've done some screw ups, and you're like, whoa. But let's look at like, let's go really negative. Like, let's talk about corruption. Um, let's say the school puts in $50,000 into the participatory budgeting program and the one kid 
says we should, you know, plant a bunch of uh, trees and, and refurbish the, you know, the, the, the garden of the school or the, the lived space of the school. And it just so happens that his dad owns a nursery. Right. And so there's this kind of corruption of the money that comes in. Are you talking about the state of Illinois here? Because it sounds like it. <laughs> right. I would never, I would never suggest that that happens to, to adults, but. Madigan. But he, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no, I see it. buddy, I'm with you, but see, that's the oh, point. Sorry. Anyways, I'm good. No, now. No, no, no. I just had goes, something in my throat. <laughs> yeah, no, no. but it, but that stuff happens. And so what, what we actually have is a lesson in our, in our, in our civics curriculum that talks about corruption, right? What are the manifestations of corruption? Cause we can't keep expecting high school kids to believe in our democracy when, when what do they see? We tell kids knowledge is power. What they see is money is power. We tell kids to get involved and then we tell them they can't vote. So how is a kid in high school who, who wants to make some kind of a positive change, they have no money and they have no vote. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not very interesting. And we're giving them money and we're preparing them to vote. This is a very different thing. Wow. And we're not, yeah. right? we're preparing a different kind of democracy. And, and, and I think that that's needed. If you actually look at the statistics, it's frightening. One in four millennials say democracy is a bad way to run a country. <laughs> oh, Lord. Right. Oh, and this is where we are. Oh, Lord. And we wonder how we no, got they, polarized, right? Yeah, blah, exactly. Blah, blah. I mean, we could go off. I'm going to try to restrain myself on this. But <laughs> there, there's ways, right? That, that, well, there's reasons, rather, as why they would think that. Because that's a lot, man. That's 25%. That's but, right. But if there, you see this, I mean, I, I was joking. Well, not really, but serious about the state of Illinois. But, yeah. you know... Uh, three of the past governors have been up, have been in prison, you know, and like it, prior to Pritzker, who's in right now, the previous three have all been in prison. <laughs> no, no right. wonder why there's the, like that kind of sentiment and look at the, all the unrest that we've had over the past year with the right. pandemic. And Illinois is not unique. There, there are corruptions. And, and this is an interesting historical note. I got to bring this in. Participatory budgeting is credited by the United Nations as being invented in 1989 in Porto Alegre, Brazil. Hmm. And the Brazilians invented it as a means to fight corruption. Wow. Because what happened was, is they started to crack open the, the, the city's finances and they're like, oh, wait a minute. All of our taxes are making these corrupt politicians rich. We need basics. We need, you know, streets and sanitary, you know, clean, clean water, you know, sanitation. So they started to um, use participatory budgeting to force the money that was being put into the city into a more transparent, because we know one of the things that fights corruption is transparency mm -hmm. is open book, right? Uh, that's why I have so many laws about open bidding and so many laws about getting access to our government yeah, finances. Freedom for Information Act. Yeah, that, all of that. Freedom, yeah, all of that goes in. And, and, you know, in security, sometimes you have secrets and sometimes the best way to keep things secure is to not have a secret. And in this case, with money, especially with the politics, you want to be controlling it. So again, we talk about that full on and we don't we don't we don't treat our kids like stupid adults in our classes we teach our kids at age appropriate concepts but again we teach the tough concepts we talk about things like okay 
what could go wrong? And, and, and now some of the other mistakes that kids make is, you know, we had one school uh, vote and this was in Sunnyvale, California, a middle school voted to put uh, replace their drinking fountain with an LK water bottle refilling station because they wanted to be more green. Right. So they're filling up. And then we realized that the budget was blown. I mean, I think we had uh, like $800 in the budget because we were going to buy it. And then the school district was like, um, no, because to put in the new thing, you got to jackhammer the old one out because it's, you know, bricked into the wall. And, oh, that's going to cost several thousand dollars. And, oh, by the way, it's going to take a year and a half to implement because. And so we learned a lot. The kids learned a lot. I don't know if that was a complete screw up but it was certainly a, a hard lesson in budgeting and that's happened in business too. And in, in adult life, for sure. You know, anyone, adult, I mean, home, personal checkbook. Can you say home? Can you say home remodel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 now, now we get into the, the ethics of the trades, right? Because <laughs> let's be straight up here because I mean, this is something that even in, uh, in it and technology that's fought because there's certain stigmas, right? With, certain industries, right? And the trades are one of them, you know, because you always think the trades almost have the same bad rep as a car salesman because you you almost always think that you're going to have this budget that's blown somewhere or another. You're going to be swindled in some way or you get a surprise bill at some points, you know, for for IT or it's, you know, they're condescending in that way. And I just, you know, talked about a story yesterday uh, around, how the Comcast rep, you know, came to the house or whatever. And here's me who's been in IT for 20 something years, right? And have built freaking networks from Merrill Lynch for a hundred and sorry, 1300 branch offices, right? That's how I cut my teeth was which, uh, with 120,000 workstations and, you know, 18,000 servers. It was just awesome doing this. And this was 20 years ago. And the Comcast rep comes to the, to the house and informs my wife who's there that says, oh, your husband doesn't know what he's talking about. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when I say, I, I mean, I list, I'm like, you know, send, or I text it, whatever. It's like, give him this. This is the problem. I've already done all, his job for him. He just needs to replace the hardware because that's right, where the right. problem is, whatever it is. And then it's like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know? But that's the stigma that we face. But same with millennials and then swinging it back to politicians, man. You know, because it, that's that's how we've seen that now. So just like the trades, just like IT, just like politicians, politics, they all have a bad rap at this point. Right. You know, and I, so I, how do you change that narrative? You got to give kids. And, and it's funny. People say I've started to adjust my marketing a little bit because I used to say, you know, we're promoting economic equality and civic engagement. And now I actually say positive civic engagement because I want to have that word that emphasizes that. A lot of the civic engagement we see on the news right now is very negative, right? Uh, uh, Unrest and rioting and just flat out fighting as opposed to making a small, imagine, I just want you to play the the clock forward. One of the kids in Hegel Elementary School is a fifth grader and he has his very first kind of civic engagement experience using participatory budgeting in a school. And like you, he planted a tree and he got a new soccer goal. Now he graduates or she graduates and they're in middle school and say in middle school, they buy some art lab equipment or some chemistry equipment 
And now they go to high school and the budget gets a little bigger, of course, in high school, right? The numbers get bigger and high school, maybe they upgrade the library or they improve the gymnasium or they do something external like you did in your student council. Now that child graduates, they're 18, they have the right to vote. They've had an experience for six, seven, eight, nine years of getting involved creates a positive result. And that's the narrative we're going to try and change through this process. That's amazing, my man. I love what you're doing with First Roots. So let's examine the exit portion of this, right? Sure. How does that come into play with First Root? Because I mean, that's one of your expertises too. You've exited two amazing businesses already. How does that come into play with First Root? Well, as you know, right, you've got to have a certain uh, profitability, right? Or, or you have to have a growth. I, it, this, it was funny. I was coaching an entrepreneur. That, there's a young man that I've been coaching. And I said something to him yesterday that he didn't understand. So I had to explain. I said, you know, profit is a choice when you're growing. And he said, what? He said, you got to be profitable. I'm like, okay, let, you know, let's use the classic example. Amazon grew for years unprofitably because they were dumping so much money into growth. Now, could Amazon have chosen to become profitable? Sure. If you actually look at their cash flow or uh, their, their Google's initial cash flow, they could have been profitable by choice. So the question becomes, if you're growing fast enough, you can choose not to be profitable, but you have to show that you've got the cash flow that will generate the future profit for the acquirer. So for us right now at First Route, we're really focused on building the foundation uh, and we're doing that through pilots. So right now we're in the piloting mode. Then we're going to move into revenue generation in the next quarter. And then from there, we're moving into long-term contracts. And we've got a specific market entry strategy that makes it really easy to bypass complexity with the school district. So a lot of ed tech companies, they kind of go to the school district first and try to make this big contract occur when they don't have any trust and they don't have any experience. Our model is almost the opposite. We start with classrooms or clubs. And then from there, we have a low cost entry point that builds you into a school and then to a, a network or the district. So that's how we grow to a point where we're, we're exitable. And then again, for my exit, I, I, I have an intuition that we'll probably be selling to a PE firm. I think if you look at the macroeconomic structure of the world, the PE firms, especially in the SaaS software space, and you, and you know, there, I don't want to name names, right? But there are some names out there. If any uh, listeners just, just, you know, Google PE software, you know, private equity firms acquiring software firms. And you'll see there's a couple of big players in there. Oh, we can give what them one. They, Toma Bravo was amazingly huge. Yeah. Yeah. Or Vista yeah. or Leeds, yeah. right? And so like, for example, Leeds is, an, is one that's focused in ed tech. And you start to look at the collection of the portfolios and then you realize your company is a product, right? If you're going to go public, then you're offering, you know, Rick, you're offering your company to an investor like me. And I'm looking at other companies and I think of them as products. So what do I want to put in my basket and what do I want to own? And I think that the private equity firms are getting smarter about how to create synergy among their portfolio companies. So I think that we'll more than likely exit uh, with uh, into a private equity firm. That's cool. Who taught you about participatory budgeting? Well, in a, to be 
totally candid. No one taught me. My background is this weird mix of, of computer science, cognitive psychology, and organizational behavior. So uh, I started like you pulling cable. I was a network jack. I, I was pulling cable underneath raised floor at EDS. I kid you not. My first job was below the ground, cabling computers and running cable. Eventually, Thank God for I, people in this world that like that, right? Because oh my God, yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's me. No, I, but I did. I loved net networking junk, and I eventually had opportunities at EDS. Uh, this amazing ten-year career where I grew up, and, and eventually I went to school at Michigan, got my bachelor's and master's in computer science and engineering. And while I was at school, I was also working in the the business school organizational behavior research. And I blended all that together to start to really just look at, you know, the very simple process of just observing the annual budget process of large companies. What I experienced as a, an executive at EDS, what I experienced at startups, what I saw large companies go through. And I was like, it's just awful, right? You, you're supposed to collaborate during the year, but at the end of the year in your annual budget, you, you fight. So I started developing techniques to help people collaborate. One of those techniques was focused on budgeting and that kind of blossomed into, you know, a company that was just focused on budgeting. So it was a lot of interaction with my customers, a lot of trial and error, <laughs> um, uh, you know, not everything worked the first time, but, but eventually we got it to the point where it worked really well. And now, you know, you're, you're in tech. So, you know, there's this thing called the scaled agile framework mm -hmm. and I was the primary or principal steward of the scaled agile framework, lean portfolio management and agile product delivery uh, layers. And now participatory budgeting is part of the scaled agile framework to help agile organizations collaboratively define budgets and move faster. We actually find that this process enables organizations to make decisions faster. So that's kind of the long-winded answer to, well, how did you get to here? A, you know, a little bit of invention and a whole lot of market interaction. What a concept, isn't that? Because uh, you look at enterprise or even SME and you look at the decision-making process, right? So if you get into sales, right? And you're the salesperson that's walking through the door, you're always trying to find the money person the person that actually says, okay, I can write the check for this. Because it, I mean, I, in, in IT, you know, you've been through this world, of course, that you might have a CFO that says, this is how much we can spend. But then you have a CEO that's saying, well, we need to achieve this outcome. And then you have the IT person saying, all the crap's breaking on me. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm dealing with this stuff every single day on a shoestring budget. Imagine if all three of those talked and, you know, from the top, you got just the question down. Hey, what do you need? You know, how, right. here's our outcomes. How do we achieve this? And then the CFO, isn't it the job of the CFO to freaking go find the cash to achieve yes. the outcomes? Not yes. to restrict and say, hey, this is what we can do. I mean, that's maybe a tiny part of it, but it's really their job to go out and find the cash to achieve the outcomes and reprioritize things. So CFOs that are listening right now, wake up. You've got you to play your role. That's great. You know, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I have a great CFO. He's amazing, but that's exactly what he does. He goes out and he says, okay, you want to do this? This is how we're going to accomplish that. 
You know, and that's even right. if there's something that's like, but you said prioritization too, right? And yes. so it comes out of Rick, if we need to accomplish this and maybe we need to pause this over here and then it's up to me to make the decision, okay, is that the outcome that I want? Because then it's collaborative, you know, it's participatory that's right. budgeting. And then I can look at my team and say, what do you need? <laughs> what, do you, what do you think it's going to take to get this done? And, and you know, our data, um, is really breakthrough. So one of our clients is a company you may or may not have heard of. They're, they're, they're called bwin.party and they're a gambling platform or an online, they call it online real money gaming, gambling in Europe. So they do poker, they do sports betting and they do casino style gamings. And we brought those groups in together. So I want you to imagine each of the groups has initiatives, right? Each of the three divisions has initiatives. And then the participatory budgeting forums are mixed between members of the groups. What we actually saw was when people looked at the company's initiatives, you would see uh, there was this very clear example where a leader, a woman who was a leader in casino said, okay, look at, look at the company right now. Sports is growing faster than, than poker and casino. So I'm going to take some of my budget and I'm going to put it on, sports on this sports initiative because she was get, she again was rising up she was optimizing the system the whole even though it meant her particular part was going to be a little lower in budget and you see this consistently when people have that conversation and they bring it up even to you as the leader what are the priorities it's amazing if you give people the chance to create this collaborative environment because the other thing they know Rick is they know in the back of their mind, this is a system of human relationships. If I'm helping you this time, I've got something in the future that is more likely you'll help me with when it's, when it's in a sense, when my division is ready for that same kind of uh, funds flow between the divisions. And you build up positive human relationships. That's, I love that, my man. As we close out this episode, I have one last question for you. And sure. this, was, this was an information you sent in, right? The first step for you going all in is living like a weasel. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> oh, I was wondering if you were going to go there. So yeah, for all the podcast listeners, uh, this is something that all my really close friends know. And now you do too. I live like a weasel. And everyone goes, what the heck is that? <laughs> So when I was 17, I had to make a choice. I was actually a pairs figure skater and I was starting to get good, but I was also, you know, a senior in high school and I was getting ready to graduate and I had to make a choice about what I focused on. And I read this really beautiful essay by Annie Dillard and it's called Living Like Weasels. And basically she describes the process by how a weasel hunts. So a weasel stalks its prey and then it, it, it attacks. And it goes for the throat. And there's this interesting physical capability. The weasel's jaw has a tendon and the tendon won't release if the prey is still moving. So either the weasel dies or the prey dies. Yeah. And so in her essay, she says, look, if you want to be successful in life, try living like a weasel. Can you do it? Can you focus on that one thing in exclusion of everything else? And I, I remember, you know, you're kind of goofy, you're 17 years old and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Right. But I decided when I was 17 to live like a weasel for that thing. What I latch onto is, you know, what I bite into is I bite into that thing and man, I hold on until it's done. And what I've actually found in life is that if you bite hard enough, that thing bites you back. 
And then you're kind of being dragged along by it. So in my last company, Continuo, we bit hard, you know, not just me, but the leadership team. And it had its ups and downs, as you know, any, every entrepreneur will talk about that. And eventually, you know, that was done, which also explains, I think, entrepreneurs, right? You've had a successful career and people go, well, wait a minute, you did this thing. Why don't you do it for the rest of your life? And you're like, well, I did that thing. I'm ready for my next thing. And so for me, living like a weasel means you, you stock, you pounce, you hold on. And then when you're done, you're done. And you, you just kind of can completely do something different in life. And that's okay because you're, you completed the thing that you were completed. So I live like a weasel. I'll send you that essay after this show because I want you to know what it says. Please, yeah. yeah. Well, if you don't mind, we'll hyperlink it too in the show notes. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. That would be great. Cool, um, my man. Thank you for coming on. Everyone can find out more about Luke at firstroot.co. Is that right, my man? Firstroot.co. Really cool. Thanks for the conversation today. I really enjoyed especially talking about our youth and the future of this country, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.